Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Radley Show for this Tuesday evening. Thrilled that you are along with us. I mean, I am almost, almost, almost as happy that you're here as the guy who, well, let me tell you about this discovery that um, there's, a, there's an auction that's coming up. If you've got lots of money, if you are listening here and you are just flush with money and you've decided that for whatever reason you don't want to give it to the host of your favorite radio show, let me tell you about this auction that uh, Sotheby's is having. This is one of the coolest things I've ever heard of. I was reading this earlier today. During Hurricane Charlie, which was back in 2004, um, there was, down in the States, there was a barn that collapsed. And inside this barn, there were 20 historic Ferraris that had been tucked away. And the barn collapsed, and a few of them were slightly damaged, the, the cars. But anyway, they moved them all to another warehouse, the owner did. And then no one's really sure what happened, if the owner died or what. But they got lost a second time in this warehouse, like they were the Lost Ark in Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end. And it was only in the last year or so that someone discovered these 20 historic Ferraris. 1954 Ferrari 500 Mondial Spider, uh, 1960 Ferrari 250 GT Coupe Series. Some of these, I, I mean, I've never even seen some of the, I mean, I'm not a Ferrari expert by any stretch, but I know what a Ferrari looks like. And some of these, I mean, are unbelievable. Never seen anything like them before. They are going way back, 1972, 1976, 1980. That one looks familiar. 69, 91 Testarossa, 1965. So anyway, this is going to be millions and millions of dollars that these things are going to sell for. I'm, I am almost as excited about you being here for the show as the person who, who I don't even know who's going to get the proceeds of this now, because someone clearly found this warehouse full of Ferraris and it's really unclear who the person was who owned the barn in the first place. He, I don't know if he's the owner of these, who's auctioning them or anyway, 1965 Ferrari two, this is a cool one, 275 GTB 6C alloy. 56 Super America Coupe Series 1. If you know anything about cars, I don't. But I know enough to say if it's a 1956 or 67 Ferrari that's still working, that's, uh, that's going to be worth a few dollars. 1964 Ferrari 250 GTL Ber- Berlinetta Lusso. Let's look cool looking car. 65, 72. Mm-mm. Anyway, glad you're along. Uh, thrilled that you're along today. Let me, uh, let me tell you what's coming up on the show today. We are going to be chatting about the encampment public meetings that were held last night. Did you hear about these? If you've been listening to the news, you probably heard something about this. They, the public was invited to come and have its say on encampments and on this encampment survey that the city is asking people to do. Here's the challenge with this. The survey, I don't believe, gives people a full ability to express their views because the survey is only really giving you two options, which is, do you like big encampments or do you like smaller encampments? The reason they haven't asked part three of the question is because, which is, do you not want encampments at all is because court um, precedent now says that as long as 
there are not available beds out there. Uh, you're not supposed to clean out the encampment, but it's interesting how many people it seems from the meeting last night, nonetheless made it clear they're not really excited about encampments, period. Does that make them horrible NIMBYs or does that make them average citizens? Well, we'll talk to Ward 14 Councillor Mike Spatafora. He's going to join us. He was one of the councillors who was presenting this last night. He will, uh, he'll be with us to talk about what, what he heard at the meeting yesterday. Uh, there is, uh, there is, there are alarm bells being raised that a, a $50 billion loan program, the government, the federal government put out during COVID for small businesses, which is now coming due in which a lot of businesses, I mean, hundreds of thousands of businesses across this country, we're talking, you know, not giant places, not Walmart and Amazon. We're talking small businesses. Uh, hundreds of thousands, as many as 250,000 businesses could be at risk of closing their doors if they have to pay back this loan that basically just kept them going during COVID when there was no ability for people to get out of their house or go shopping or whatever. I mean, look, it's not that hard to remember what it was like, even though I know that we've, you know, we, we, we sometimes can't even remember what we ate for breakfast. But back in COVID, if you bought something, where did you buy it? We all bought from Amazon. Well, all, most. Because they came right to your door and it was easy. But if you were a small business, it was really hard to compete with that. This, these loans, I guess, kept you going. And now if they're expected to pay it back, which they are, a lot of them are saying, we have no hope of this. We're going to shut down. We'll, we'll talk to Dan Kelly from the Canadian Federation of Small Business at the bottom of this hour. And next hour, uh, a lot of fun next hour, there is a story that I just keep learning from more and more people that they know nothing about. One of the great mu- rock music stories of all time that back in 1964, we'll go into this in great detail at the next hour, but back in 1964, right as the Beatles were about to embark on their first world tour, Ringo Starr got sick and couldn't go with the band on their tour, at least not to start with. He had to go to hospital, I guess, but they had to go. The Beatles, the the world was waiting for the Beatles. So they went out and found a replacement Ringo star for the beginning of the tour. A guy named Jimmy Nichols. We are going to tell you the story of Jimmy Nichols. Uh, We'll be joined by the author of a book called The Beetle Who Vanished. This this author searched the world to try and find Jimmy Nichols, who essentially has become a, a recluse since then, does not want to talk about it, will not be found. I don't know if he found him or not. We'll find out next hour. But a, a really fascinating story that, as I say, I'm just so surprised. I didn't know about this, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, there's a lot of things I don't know about, but more and more I talk to people and they say, I didn't, I've never heard of this guy either. It's just a great story that we will, uh, we will dive into next hour and find out all about, uh, that and lots more coming up on the show today. As always, the first segment of the Scott Radley show is brought to you exclusively by fox40shop.com for sport and for safety. It has to be fox40shop.com and for the promo code Radley at checkout. And you will get 25% off your order. We will take a very quick break. And when we come back, we are going to get into the encampment meeting that was held for mountain residents last night. What we heard, what it means, where we go from here. 
Lots to get into with that. We'll do that next. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. There was, uh, if you've been listening to the news today, you will know this. Uh, There was a meeting last night, a public meeting last night, a well-attended public meeting last night uh, regarding encampments. And this one was put together by a number of mountain councillors. And they were asking their constituents some of the things that are in the the survey that you can take if you want through the city's website, but essentially getting their point of view, getting their thoughts in person in a public forum about what to do with encampments. It's a vexing problem for this city. There's no question. There's no easy answer for sure. And there is a lot of passion around this, a lot of passion around this. I want to bring in Mike Spatafora. He is the counselor for Ward 14. Joins us now. Mike, how are you today? Hey, Scott. How are you? I am excellent. When I say there's a lot of passion around this, did you hear that at the meeting yesterday? Yeah, definitely some passion. But I, I think uh, I think I think we need to also acknowledge the compassion that was in the room, Scott, for for our unhoused community. Um, but definitely passion with some with a lot of compassion as well around around this this uh this situation for sure it is such a tricky thing we i mean we've talked about it on the show we've opened our phone lines we've talked to counselors we've talked to people who uh work in that community i is there for you right now as a city councillor is there a trickier more difficult issue to contend with at this time i would i would say no um it's definitely the most complex issue and um, you know, highly stressful issue that I think the city's facing, uh, that the province is facing, the whole country's facing. But obviously, from a from a city council perspective, uh, you know, the 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 unhoused community and, and trying to to fix the problem, which, um, as we all know, it's going to be extremely difficult to do on our own, um, is definitely probably at the top of the list. I would say. Uh, and and again, I think part of the reason, and this came up as I understand it in the meeting, and tell me anything I say that I'm speaking of the meeting that you didn't hear. You just jump in and correct me. But one of the things that I understand came up in the meeting was with a lot of the compassion, there are people who really do have strong feelings and worry about where an encampment should be or could be or some of the, the, the issues that would happen if you put a big encampment into a residential area or where in a residential there, There's so many issues that go with it that people are concerned about. That, that, definitely, that definitely was raised um, at the meeting yesterday. And again, I, I thought city staff did a, did a good job and it was extremely well attended um, by the residents. And that, I think, will show you um, how important it is to many people in our community. Um, but yes, there's definitely were concerns raised around the safety issue, especially when we discussed or when it was brought up the possibility of sanctioned encampments um, within public parks. So um, residents definitely did bring up those concerns about safety and some of the things that would be happening in the park with potential of, of drug use and that. So it definitely did come up and they, they were very passionate and concerned about those uh, those things. Let me, let me put you right on the spot, Mike, and it's probably unfair, but I would ask any city councillor if that we were talking about this, so it's not just you. If, if there was a sanctioned encampment that was given the thumbs up from the city and you volunteered 
to put a city park in Ward 14 up as the first encampment is in a residential area. How do you think your constituents would respond to you? How, how much would your phone be ringing, or do you think they'd all be saying, great job, Mike? Um, I think, uh, I'm going to stop you there. I, I, I think I'd get calls from from um, residents. Um, the majority of calls that, I, that I've received currently when we've talked about encampments, um, they're, they're mostly around uh, residents who have concerns about having encampments in public parks. What I would say is I don't, at this time, feel like I'd be able to support sanctioned encampments in, in, in public parks. Um, in Ward 14, you know, we have uh, young families um, that will be going and using the parks with their newborns, with their two-year-olds, three-year-olds. There's families who send their teenagers to parks on their own. And, and what I've been hearing from my residents is they they don't feel safe having those amenities if they're going to be including encampments. And so that, at this yeah. time, I wouldn't be able to support uh, sanctioned sites inside public parks. And that really becomes one of the huge challenges here, right? Is that even if it gets voted on, even if, even if you were to be outvoted at council, somewhere you have to find a place to put it. And I'm maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not sure there are too many councillors that are going to be lining up to say, put it in my ward first. Yeah, you know, I, I can't speak for any of the other councillors. And again, you know, my, I can only, you know, talk about the interactions that I've had with, with residents and, and the concerns that were brought up directly to my office. And then obviously the concerns we heard last night in saying that we need to, we need to understand how we can, we can correct the problem, even if it's a short term um, issue with having uh, somewhere where the, the unhoused community can, can, can live um, yeah, and yeah. have amenities. Uh, I, I, I don't believe public parks is the answer. Um, I don't know that there's a quick fix. There was obviously some some um, discussion around, you know, are there any vacant buildings that are currently not used that would have certain amenities that would allow um, services um, that some of the uh, of our un- unhoused community needs in order to to um, you know live their day and help them through their day with some of the um, you know mental health concerns that they may have or some some of the addiction. Uh, concerns that they fight with. So I, you know, I, I think people want a solution. I think everybody wants to help our unhoused community. I agree. I agree. I, agree. I think we just got to be, we just got to be mindful that a public park, at least for, for the residents that I've spoken with, it's not, it's not the, the right answer. At the meeting last night. So there is a, a survey. I think people know about this. There's the city has a survey out. You can take it at the city's website and, uh, and it asks about what your feeling is on this kind of thing. The one complaint about that one, Mike, or criticism, I guess, is it offers the choice of, do you support smaller encampments or do you support larger sanctioned encampments? For legal reasons, I guess, because of court precedent, it doesn't offer do a choice of I don't support encampments. I th- I heard, though, that at the meeting last night that that option, to some degree anyway, was expressed, that there should be or people wanted to have a third option to say, no, I don't support them in general, period. I think there was definitely people at the meeting yesterday that um, that their their they had their mind was made up that they did not support any encampments. Right. See, there was definitely that definitely did come up. Um, again, I, I don't I, I don't know the survey um, from top to bottom and what questions were weren't there. But um, I trust you in, in the fact that you're saying that that's the way it was. But yes, there was 
there was definitely conversation about size of encampments, but there was also residents that were at the meeting that did bring up the fact that they were not comfortable with any re- any uh, sanctioned encampments. But I think a lot of that's tied to parks. I think I think people have some real real concerns around um, using the public parks as sanctioned encampments, and I and I really think that um, a lot of the community wants the unhoused community housed. They want let's find a solution in a building that provides safety, provides the amenities that they need, um, rather than uh, in a park where those amenities may not may not be there. And, you know, it's really interesting you say that because I, I do believe, I, I, sh- I share your view. I think that the people who say I don't want encampments or I don't feel comfortable with them, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are disinterested in the people in the encampments. I think people want a solution to this. I really do. Well, and that's why I brought up the compassion right at the beginning um, here, Scott, because I, I, I don't think that was lost yesterday. I think um, I think the residents that were there made it abundantly clear that they are very compassionate with with the situation, but at the same time, there there there's concerns from a safety perspective as well. So, you know, finding the answer, and that's why a lot of times, you know, a a a building, a, um, a, a structure where they can have all the amenities and make it easy for the housing services department to have all the services, the wraparound services that some of these individuals require, it's easy to, to administrate that when we're all in one area and one in one building. So that is uh, Mike Spatafora. He is the counselor for Ward 14. Uh, listen, appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, God. Have a great night. Uh, it's boy. It is, uh, as he said, I don't know that there's anything council, every, every council has something, it seems, lately anyway. Every council has some issue that ties it up in knots. We've talked about this before, whether it's it was the stadium for a while, it was it's, it is and was LRT, uh, other things. This seems to be this council's thing. The encampments are a really, really tricky thing, and what makes it even trickier is... The feelings, the passions, the comments, the sentiments on both sides that if you don't like them, you're unkind. And if you do like them, you're wanting the city to go down the toilet. It, 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 I don't know that it's particularly helpful, all those comments, because I, I don't believe either side is malicious. I really don't. But it's really hard to find common ground in this one because people have very, very, very strong feelings about it. Let's take a very quick break. We'll be back right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. We don't necessarily like to uh, cast our minds back to the early days of the pandemic. I think we would all prefer to forget that, quite honestly. But we can't entirely especially with this next story, because in those early days of the pandemic, among the other grants and money that the federal government was pushing around to try and get people to have some money in their pocket and keeping things going while everything seemingly was falling apart, uh, there was there were loans that were offered, up to $60,000 to small businesses to buy PPE or to do whatever, try and find some way to remain solvent during this really, really, really difficult time. Again, we sometimes forget already, but it was, as you recall, very, very difficult times for small businesses. Well, the date to pay that back is coming up. 
And if you've noticed, um, things are not easy still now. We've got inflation. We've got rising prices. We've got this. We've got that. We've got the other. It's not easy. These are not easy times for small businesses. And those who have this loan to pay back, apparently many of them are saying this is this is kind of dire. I want to bring in Dan Kelly. He is the president and the CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Joins us now. Dan, thank you for the time today. Good to be with you. You, I think today in a piece uh, that I was reading where you were quoted, you said up to 250,000 small businesses across this country could be in trouble with this? Yeah, this is deeply worrisome. Our surveys at at CFIB show that uh, 43% of businesses are not prepared to, uh, don't have the money to pay back their SIBA loan at this stage. Uh, And that a huge chunk of them are telling us that if they do uh, lose the forgivable portion of the loan. If they don't pay it back by the end of this year, they lose the $20,000 forgivable chunk. They have to start paying interest. And if that happens, a huge percentage of the 19% of all businesses in Canada or about 250,000 companies say that they are at risk of closing their doors for good. Uh, that's how dire this is. Let me play uh, cynic for just one second and say, okay, but if you know that this is coming up, maybe you should be saving or scrounging or figuring out a way to find that money if you know this debt was coming due. And to that, you would say? Well, look, uh, that's what businesses have been doing, hoping that the economy would recover uh, enough for them to, 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 to pay their current bills and make a dent in the debt they had to take on to survive the pandemic. We got to remember, though, that these businesses were shut down in some cases, especially in Ontario that had the longest lockdowns in the entire world. Uh, businesses were shut down for up to 430 days, shut down altogether. Uh, and, and yet those bills continue to come in. Governments, to their credit, did offer some support programs, federal and provincial, one of them being this loan program. But businesses are keen to pay this off to get back to normal. Many of them are saying, you know, that they remain a viable business if it weren't for this debt that was hanging around their necks. Uh, but that's what we're worried is going to pull them underwater in the in the days ahead. And, and we're urging Ottawa to be a bit more patient. We're not asking for for anything at this stage, other than uh, some more time to pay back the loan. Um, we also think it's good practice for Ottawa because if governments push too hard right now. Many businesses, we believe, if they do go under, are going to, they're not going to repay any of the $40,000 balance that they have on these loans. Ottawa and taxpayers are going to be out that money. And so it's good for the business, but also, we believe, good for the taxpayer. And, and uh, that makes a ton of sense. Although, if I'm in Ottawa and I'm looking at the deficit and the debt, I'm probably thinking we need some of this money coming back in because we're, we're really extended here. Yeah, look, I mean, <laughs> we'll argue Ottawa hasn't been particularly concerned about the debt they, uh, and, and deficit. They had a balanced budget in the forecast, and then just in the most recent budget, decided to erase that altogether. Uh, but look, we need businesses to survive if we're going to be able to get the economy back on track. Even now, three years after the pandemic started, uh, we have uh, only half of businesses telling us that they are back to pre-pandemic levels of sales, 2019 levels of sales. Uh, the average small firm has taken on $100,000 worth of debt to, to just to survive the pandemic. Um, and even those that are back to kind of normal sales are telling us their costs are through the roof, so their ability to service their debt is limited. So this is why we're urging Ottawa to just be a bit more patient, give businesses another year or two to repay this loan, 
Uh, we think that that will make a big difference and ensure that at least many more of these businesses can cross the finish line and get back to a recovery. Did, as far as you know, did most small businesses in this country take advantage of this program? I mean, it sounds like a lot of them did. They did. This is the largest program of its kind. 900,000 businesses took out a SIBA loan. That's way more than used the, the wage subsidy, rent subsidy, the provincial, like the Ontario Small Business Grant. Uh, the SIBA the, the loan program was the most utilized program, also the well, best received. As you noted at the start, this program could be used for a variety of purposes. It had flexibility, and many businesses were darn lucky that they had access to this money because they just wouldn't have survived in those early days when the world was falling around them. So, Dan, what though happens if, uh, so I, I understand your point for sure, but let's give us a little more time here until we can, the world can begin spinning on a little more of a normal axis still so we can make some of this money back and pay it off. But at the same time, I mean, we have heard endless rumblings now for months that a recession might be looming and interest rates are going up and there's all kinds of other things. What's the level of confidence that, he, let's say the government gave us another year gave businesses another year. What's the level of confidence that even in a year, you and all of they wouldn't be back here saying, man, the things are still not good. We need another year after that. Yeah, well, look, that this is one of the reasons why government did act, uh, to its credit. They did already decide the loans were supposed to be due at the end of 2022. we got to put our mindset back, as you started this out, uh, with as to what was happening at the beginning of the pandemic. We thought the pandemic would last for, you know, remember, it was two weeks to flatten the curve, then that became two months. Nobody expected that that we would still have on and off restrictions for two solid years. So for in many respects, businesses were expected to get about three years to pay back a loan for for a problem that we thought was going to be a couple of months in duration. We think that, a, 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 you know, another year or two from now would put all of the COVID damage behind us. There's no question it's not going to save everybody. There are businesses that are going to continue to close their doors as they realize that they're just not going to be able to get back to, to pre-pandemic sales. But I do believe strongly that there are a bunch of viable businesses. If given more time, uh, we will have uh, a greater likelihood of them paying back their loan, getting Ottawa back the resources that, that it lent, and at the same time, allow the business to go on to fight another day. But these are shaky ground, and there's no no confidence right now as to where things are going. Uh, with interest rates continuing to rise, uh, we are we are expecting some more turbulent waters for the months ahead. We got to take this one day at a time. So you have mentioned we only got a few seconds left here. You have mentioned say 250,000 businesses. Let's let's say that that's the extreme. Let's say it was 100,000 businesses. All right. Well, we'll be kinder than that. What happens if 100,000 small businesses go under because they can't pay this back? You think about all the employees that then would lose their jobs, perhaps, you know, maybe five employees on average, 100,000 businesses. That's a half a million Canadians potentially out of work. You think about the taxes that won't be paid to Ottawa for GST, HST, and, and, and corporate income taxes and payroll taxes. Uh, and you think about the economic activity that would disappear from our communities, sported up shops, these are some pretty, pretty tough things that were that would happen if more businesses close their doors as a result of pandemic damage. We've got to keep in mind also that this is just not fair. Businesses weren't closed because they were bad businesses. They were closed to protect society. We think governments need to make up the difference for that period uh, as they essentially their business, their right to do business was taken away from them. 
Yeah, I, I wonder, you know, even as you're talking here and you started going through the numbers there, what crossed my mind, and I don't know if you've thought of this, but there's been a lot of comments in the last few weeks about the fact that with these giant grants to Volkswagen and the other uh, one for the uh, electric vehicle batteries, that I think it worked out to something like $5 million a job that the grants were going to be uh, covering. That, that, that's a lot of small businesses that could have forgiveness or even delay of loans for the amount that you're going to pay for one job at a time. If, if governments can come up with billions of dollars at the drop of a, uh, at the, at a snap of a finger for giant multinational and wealthy corporations, uh, you know, pro- providing a little bit more time for businesses, to, small and medium-sized businesses, to repay a loan that they took out to survive a, a pandemic seems entirely reasonable. And it's one of the reasons why we're pushing so hard. Members of Parliament, we've got a petition on the CFIB website, cfib.ca. We're urging all small business owners to call their MPs and let their voices be heard. That is Dan Kelly. He is the president and the CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. I believe he has a speech to give, so we will let him go. Dan, really, really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for the time. Anytime at all. Quick break here on the Scott Radley Show. When we come back, it is time for Matt's in today. So it'll be Matt's story of the day. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 6.51 here on the Scott Radley Show. Time for Matt's story of the day. Matt is in today. Matt is pressing buttons and pulling levers and teaching, and he, he is doing a little bit of everything today. It is, uh, it, is, it is the Matt show on the other side of the glass here. It's like a flurry of activity at all times. Uh, I'm going to give Matt three stories from around the world, and Matt will then listen and maybe discuss and I don't know what else, but he will, in the end, decide which one he likes best, and that becomes Matt's story of the day. Matthew, are you ready for this onerous task? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Let's start in Tampa. A woman named Nancy Sauer died recently. Uh, she had money. She had a lot of money. Um, they, uh, when they went into the house after she passed away, 5,000 pieces of jewelry were among her collection. Um, many, many. She's 84 years old. She had a nice, long life and uh, the house that uh, she lived in um, 2.5 million dollar mansion uh, in I mean houses in the states are not what they are here two and a half million in Hamilton yeah it's a nice house but it's not the nicest thing you've ever seen in your life but down there it was a mansion anyway um, there's been some consternation among her family however because uh, when they got to her will, <laughs> I guess the rest of the family is like rubbing their hands going, wow, sell the jewelry, get the two and a half million. Nope, she left everything to her seven cats, <laughs> which I'm sure they appreciate it. Uh, they'd be just as happy being put out into a backyard somewhere as long as there's water and food and they could run around. But yes, they now are the owners of a mansion and lots of jewelry. So, you know, good for them, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I mean, that's the plot of the Aristocats, isn't it? <laughs> it kind of is. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, uh, you know that there's going to be a court battle saying she was not in her right mind. But see, I'm not sure they're going to win that one because there are lots of people who are, I mean, the stereotype is the cat ladies, but I'm sure there's cat guys too. We never hear about the cat men who live in their apartment with 15 cats. She was in a mansion with only seven. I mean, that's not even... That's not even falling into the stereotype because there was lots of room and you know, they're not all over each other. Anyway. Yeah, I need to know the logistics of, about like, because uh, there's obviously a cat keeper, right? There's got to be. Well, m- and maybe that person falls into the, uh, 
Maybe that falls into the inheritance, too. I'm not really sure. Her license plate <laughs> featured a Playboy bunny, which left some neighbors wondering if she once posed for the magazine. I don't know. She's 84. That would have been uh, something I don't really want to think about right now. Uh, story number two comes to us from <laughs> Evanston, Illinois, where um, a guy has been charged because he was actually asleep, having a dream in his bed. 62-year-old guy was lying in bed asleep had a dream that he was being burglarized and somehow in his dream grabbed his gun from his bedside table and shot himself in the leg. I'm not exact. I'm trying to figure out the, how the body parts were moving and where was going where that he would have shot himself in the leg while in a dream that he was being robbed. Uh, nonetheless, he's, he has now been charged as well as having a, Bullet from his 357 Magnum revolver. That's a that's a hefty shot. I mean, I don't know what's left of his leg. Quite honestly, he's okay. He's okay. All right, we don't we don't do these stories of anyone who's actually died. I mean, he's okay, but nonetheless, that's a, that's a way to wake up. Yeah, I, I mean, you got to think maybe that's something he's thought about. Like, if a burglar comes in my, you know, because it was ready to go. Uh, it sound yeah, you're probably right. It sounds like he had prepared for this eventuality. And you know what I also wonder? Have you ever gone to sleep after either watching a TV show or something else and your dream bears some resemblance to the thing you just watched? There's some tie-in or some discussion you had with someone else? Yes, definitely. I just wonder, was he thinking about this because he had seen something on TV and so it was front of mind and... Who knows? But anyway, yes, that, that's uh, advice to someone. Don't shoot yourself in your sleep. That seems like a very bad idea. Uh, story number three, speaking of, well, I don't know if this is a bad idea. This is just strange. A woman in Argentina bought three seats on a plane for her flight because she wanted to have the, I guess, the first class experience, but without the first class price. Because even buying three economy seats would not add up to the price of one first class seat, if you look most of the time. Uh, But the way she created her first class seat was by taking saran wrap and encasing the three seats and the ones in front of it into a saran wrap little hotel room that she could live in. So she was fully encased in saran wrap in these three seats. I don't know if this was a COVID thing or a privacy thing. Uh, but anyway, the before they took off, I mean, she'd worked at this because the pictures, she worked at this. The, the steward came over or stewardess or airline attendant, whatever you call them, and said, you cannot be building your own little house. I don't know why not. Why not? Why could she not do that? If you bought the three seats, why could you not engulf yourself in saran wrap and live in your little make-believe world? Unless it's like something above our heads that we don't know about safety-wise. Well, maybe, yeah. maybe you know, she's not going to breathe because there's no air. So poke a few holes. Make it like a cat, you know, for the, like a cat in the other lady's house. Just yeah. poke a few holes so that she can breathe. And if she wants some Coke, <laughs> just dribble it through. She can, you know, hold her mouth up to the hole if she wants a drink or whatever. But uh, So will your story of the day today be the cat woman of Tampa who left her two and a half million dollar mansion and all of her jewelry to her seven cats. Will it be the guy in Evanston, Illinois, who dreamed he was being robbed and shot himself in his sleep in the leg, by the way. So he's okay. Or will it be the woman who bought three seats on a plane and created her own first class compartment 
uh, despite the fact that the attendants told her that was not allowed. You know, if it wasn't for the Aristocats, I would say the first one, but I got to go with the guy shooting his leg in his sleep. Like, that's just on a whole level of impressive sleep, you know, deprived, whatever it is that happened, you know? Is that considered sleep? I mean, I mean sleepwalking? Like, uh, I don't know. Is that, would that be, I mean, he's not on his feet, obviously. Yeah. He doesn't have a foot now, but what, is, <laughs> is that considered the same as sleepwalking? I mean, is. I would think so. Half sleep state. I, I mean. Yeah, he was in a non-insane automaton state, I okay. guess is what they would, you know, call it in court. Um, okay. <laughs> Yeah, all I'll right. take well, their word for th- it. There you go. Yeah, I covered a case one time where a guy claimed that was his defense, that he was sleepwalking when he did something absolutely horrible, and it was called non-insane automatism. And, of course, um, the fact that he traveled for, like, 45 minutes in his car and did a bunch of other horrible things, <laughs> they said, yeah, probably I mean, not- at some point you would have woken up. But anyway, all right, yeah. there you go. Matt's story of the day. We will take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk to the author of a book to tell a story of the Beatle who vanished, a guy who filled in for Ringo Starr at the height of Beatlemania. You've probably never heard this story before. He was a Beatle for 11 days and then vanished. We'll tell you his story when we come back. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Welcome back. Hour number two of the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. I don't know if it's something I did or if it's happening to other people as well, but um, I mean, I use Twitter mostly for work. I don't know if you use Twitter at all, but somehow I seem to be getting tweets from weird websites now or weird Twitter accounts that are all strange videos of people crashing cars into people and tires flying off and bonking people in the head. And I like, I don't even, I, I didn't sign up for any of this. I don't know what I've clicked on that makes people think that I want to watch people falling through roofs and <laughs> accidentally injuring themselves. I, 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 I don't quite understand Elon Musk's thing here. I, I'm, I, I, I honestly did not go looking for, <laughs> I'm just, there's one that just popped up here, a woman trying to, you know, one of those punching machines where you go to a place and they have a punching bag and you hit it and it shows how hard you hit it. Well, she swings and misses and punches her boyfriend in the face by accident. I didn't sign up for this, but this is what I get. This is what Twitter is to me now. This is why I've long said the day I retire, whenever that may be, is the day I sign off my Twitter account. This is, this is not enhancing my intellect or life experience in any way. <laughs> anyway, uh, maybe I'm alone. Maybe somehow, I don't know, maybe I hit some button somewhere along the way that uh, that led me here. I'm not really sure. Uh, hey, welcome back to hour number two of the show. Glad you are along. Got your quiz question, and then we're going to get into one of the great music stories that you'll ever hear, I think. I'm fascinated to learn about this because I stumbled on this and... Uh, uh, no, knew nothing about it, and apparently no one else did either, because I haven't found anyone else who knew. But uh, here's your quiz question this evening. A traditional Scottish Highland game features an event in which competitors throw a tapered log that's almost 20 feet long. What is that event called? It's a Scottish Highland game. You go to the Scottish Highland games, they got the bagpipers, the dancers, all the rest, and they have a bunch of games. And one of them is these guys take a log, almost 20 feet long, and they have to flip it up and over. What is that log 
what is that game called? There's a name for it. 905-645-3221, star 9900, or you can text us, 905-645-3221. What is the name of that individual event called at the Scottish Highland Games with a big, long log that guys throw around? 905-645-3221, star 9900, or you can text us, 905-645-3221. I don't even know really where to begin with this next story. I think this is one of the most interesting and crazy music stories that you're ever going to hear from the world of music. Uh, I didn't know about this. Maybe some of you listening are saying, Radley, what are you doing? This is everybody knows this. I didn't know, and I've talked to a few people. They didn't know either. So let, let's let's tell you about this. There there are a number of people who probably can lay claim to the title of the fifth Beatle. There's Pete Best, who was the original drummer, and Stu Sutcliffe, and Billy Preston certainly has been called that, and some people have said George Martin, the Beatles producer, could earn that title. Uh, if you're a fan of early Saturday Night Live, you might even remember Clarence, the fifth Beatle, who played the trombone. That's a little bit of a stretch. But Jimmy Nickel is a name I hadn't heard before. However... Uh, he is not totally unknown. Jim Birkenstadt is an author. He's known as the rock and roll detective. He's written a book called The Beatle Who Vanished. Jim joins me now. Jim, how are you today? I'm great, Scott. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I think we're going to have an interesting chat about Jimmy Nickel. Yeah, this is a, a wild, wild story. So let's let's set this up, and anything I say that's not quite right here, fix what I'm saying and then jump in. So back in 1964, when they came over to... North, well, when they started their world tour, came to Ed Sullivan and all that, they had this huge world tour lined up. And at some point when they're going to Australia, Ringo Starr gets sick? Well, actually, the real start of the world tour was June of 1964. The uh, visit to America in February of 64 to go on the Ed Sullivan show was just sort of a put a toe in the water and okay. see if like our music and Capitol Records did a great job of pre-promotion Ed Sullivan did a great job and and that went over really well but then they went back home to uh, actually work on and film the movie a hard day's night and then record an album for that movie and then on June 4th they were meant to start their first world tour which started in the Netherlands then would go to Hong Kong, then Australia and New Zealand. So that was like okay. the first leg world tour. But amazingly, on June 3rd, the day before the world tour, all the plans had been made, all the you know hotels, all the travel arrangements, security, having spare instruments in each city, uh, you know, getting all the warm-up bands involved. Uh, everything was planned. There were there were certain singles coming out by the Beatles in those different countries. There was uh, merchandising in the stores, all in stock, ready to go. So just as all that's about to happen, uh, and, and Brian Epstein spent a year writing letters back and forth to people to organize this because they were all pre-internet and yep, no one yep. could have calls back then. All of a sudden, Ringo Starr uh, at noon the day before, passed out at a uh, photo session. 
in London. And uh, Neil Aspinall told me he remembered, Neil was their road manager at the time. And he told me that he, he basically just picked up Ringo in his arms and took him to the hospital. So now the Beatles and their manager were faced with really a huge issue here because in those days there was no insurance for canceled tours. There was no, there were no legal, um, there were no legal clauses to give a band an out in case of illness. It, it was just completely the show must go on. And as a result, Brian Epstein had to talk with the boys and say, the show must go on or your career may be over today. <laughs> uh, and those pop bands had very short careers. So uh, George Harrison was gave a lot of pushback. He said, if, if Ringo's not coming, then we're really not the Beatles, so we're not going to do this. Um, but, but Epstein made the argument that, you know, look, this is for a very short time. We're just replacing Ringo temporarily. Uh, we'll bring him back to wherever the tour is when he gets better. But we can't afford worldwide bad publicity. We can't afford to lose millions of dollars uh, and, and just have your career probably just come to an end. So John and Paul were on board and eventually George understood that, you know, they, it was a team approach and they had to figure out a way to do it. So, All right. So they got to find a drummer. Now, I mean, right. at that time, I'm guessing because of the Beatles, because of a lot of other things, England is probably just teeming with guys playing in bands. Where do they find right. Jimmy Nickel, though? Well, actually, uh, they had asked another session player, uh, another drummer, if uh, he could come. And he was kind of famous at the time. I think he was playing drums secretly for the Kinks in the studio and a few other bands that that weren't good enough to have their drummer play in the studio at that time. And he said, no, I can't go. I can't afford to be away from studio work. It's too lucrative. Uh, so, but there is a young man named Jimmy Nickel. He's a studio drummer and he's in a band with Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. He's really good. He can learn anything. So uh, they called him up. They actually had George Martin call him up and ask him to come down to Abbey Road and he basically did a tryout slash rehearsal with the Beatles for about 20 minutes. And they were really surprised that as I discovered it in my research, they, they couldn't believe it. Jimmy Nickel knew every single Ringo part of the songs that were going to be in their, um, uh, on their set list for the concerts. Which would be normal and, today for a drummer because everybody who's a real drummer would have studied Ringo Starr. Oh, they, they know drummers from all different, you know, bands and, and great songs. But back then, this is still the beginning. I mean, that's sort of odd that he would know every one of the parts. Well, and, the, and my research found that the reason he knew these parts, including their latest hits, was because he had worked at Pi Studios and... Uh, a producer had come in there and created a little record label where the the session players would replicate or cover, as we say nowadays, the hits of the day. And it was called the Big Six label or Top Six, the Top Six label. And, it, and basically they picked the songs they thought were going to be the top six songs on the hit list, the hit parade the next week. And they'd get these singles out there to the fans. And the fans were fooled into buying what they thought were 
the top six hits of the day on this little EP record. <laughs> and it just so happens that at that time, uh, the Beatles were topping the charts, you know, in multiple positions on the chart. So Jimmy Nickel, who was the regular in this top six studio band, was learning all of Ringo's parts. And that was just five, six months before the Beatles ended up calling him. So, so it was just great luck for the Beatles. Yeah. And then so what was it like literally 20 minutes into a tryout, they say, hey, Jimmy, you want to go on a tour with us? No, you're John Lennon. So that's it. You're in. <laughs> <All right. laughs> and and like the story, and we'll get to the rest of the story in a minute because it takes a bit of a twist. But uh, from what you know, was there any doubt or did Jimmy Nickel immediately say, count me in? I'm, you know, I'll sure I'll be a Beatle. Yeah, I think that, you know, Jimmy Nickel was very ambitious. He had worked very hard to get to the position he was in. The reason why was fascinated by his story was because I wanted to know first, what was the first part of his life where he got into a position to even be asked to try out with the Beatles? Then what was it like in the, in the hurricane of Beatlemania? And then what do you do with the rest of your life after you've been to the top of the entertainment mountain? All right. And I think so that's, you know, why this, whole story has appealed to the movie industry and why they're making a film. We'll get to that in a second. So let's go to part two. So here, here, that's how he finds his way to this band, but he does get chosen. He does go on tour. They give him a Beatles haircut and give him Ringo star suit or someone that fits like that. And off they go. It's bizarre though, in a sense, because today, and I mean, I know things are different today, but if I don't know, take take a band that has a very, very famous, member a frontman or whatever and all of a sudden you just replace that person i don't know that everyone just goes okay that's fine that's cool whatever but from right. everything i've read it sounds like when they went on tour nobody seemed to mind it was still the beatles he was just the drummer right well i i do think um i was trying to think of a, a situation like the one you mentioned i think motley crew at one point in the late 80s early 90s replaced their lead singer for a while but Eventually, they brought him back because that just didn't work out. Yeah, ACDC uh, right. did it recently. Well, was, uh, Axl Rose yeah. from Guns N' Roses filled in when Brian Johnson had ear problems. But yeah, it doesn't happen often, but it's... Not yeah. the same. Not the same. I mean, and how can you replace John Lennon, the founder of the band, and, you know, the co-writer of most of the songs, you know? That just would not have worked out. But a drummer can be replaced. And substituted. Look at the Foo Fighters. Um, yeah, they yeah. You know, without Taylor Hawkins since he passed away, and they're they're back on tour with a new drummer. So it can be done. It's just everybody always talks about. Oh, I'm so glad I went to the earlier show when I got to see the original band. So he's with them for eleven days, as I understand it. He does eight shows while he's down there. Um, uh, everything that I can read about it says, you know, that was fine. He did a fine job and all was good. Then 11 days goes by, Ringo Starr reappears because he's now healthy again. One of this, and you've, I, I know you've seen this picture a million times. You've probably posted it. One of the saddest pictures I've ever seen from the music industry is this picture of Jimmy Nickel sitting alone, still in his Beatles garb, it looks like, in the Melbourne airport, absolutely alone, ready to fly home while the Beatles go off to further Beatlemania. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable right. photo. It's very poignant. And in fact, uh, I even was able to locate an interview where Jimmy and I write about that. That picture's in the book. 
and he's just sitting there and it just looks like he's been through a war yeah. and survived and he's shell-shocked or, you know, just, he just is in a daze, like what just happened? And it's a very poignant picture. He talks about what was going through his mind at the time the picture was taken. That's in the book. And it's a, it's interesting because he's just conquered the world in his mind, but all, and he's enjoyed, you know, all the, the, the great things that come with fame, but now things have turned around. It's like, now I've got to do this on my own. You know, what am I, what's my second act going to be? Mm. And you can see all of that's going through his mind in that one uh, dramatic picture. When I, Jim, at the top, when I mentioned pe people like Pete Best and Stu Sutcliffe and Billy Preston, I mean, all of them, um, to some degree or another, um, they, they leaned a little bit or maybe more than a little bit in some cases on their fame from their connection to the Beatles. Jimmy Nickel, once he left, from everything I understand, he did the opposite. He did not want that to be his legacy. Am I right? Um. I would say that it was a bit of a double-edged sword for Jimmy. Like some, sometimes he embraced using the fact that he was in the Beatles, especially um, getting the job with the Spotniks in, uh, in Sweden. That's why they picked him because he had the Beatle aura. He had the, the fact that he was a drummer in the Beatles helped enhance their band in Mexico after he left the Spotniks and wanted to just start his own band in a club, you know, he had the marquee say something like, you know, formerly with the Beatles or the fifth Beatle, Jimmy Nickel tonight, you know, with the so-and-so band. Other times he displayed a lot of uh, anger or frustration at being connected with the Beatles and wanted people to realize that he accomplished much more than just, you know, his two weeks with the Beatles. Uh, in fact, I, ha I interviewed his wife, who he married in Mexico at the time, and she relayed a moment in time where he had his gold watch that Brian Epstein and the Beatles had given him as a thank you gift, and it's engraved on the back and such. And he got angry and slammed it into a drawer uh, because he was upset with with what he perceived as some blacklisting by Brian Epstein after he left the Beatles. Why? And why, why would that? Why would that have happened? If if in fact it did, what would his thought be for the reason he'd be blacklisted? Well, you sort of have to go back to the early first third of my book because I talk about how he was in a band with Vince Eager, who was a big singer in the late fifties, early sixties in England. And he was uh, Vince's drummer and Vince had a falling out with his manager and was blacklisted for like two years. He couldn't get a, get a gig anywhere. He couldn't get a recording deal. He couldn't do anything. Jimmy was very, um, I don't know, impacted by that story by, by living through it. You know, the band had to break up. He had to find some other work. And I think that Jimmy confused that story with, an argument he had with Brian Epstein prior to uh, leaving the Beatles and flying home. And then anytime something negative happened, I think it was his perception that uh, he may have been blacklisted by uh, Brian Epstein. And, and I, I uh, actually interviewed 
some people in the Beatles inner circle. They said that was just not Brian Epstein's style. That was not his interest. They felt that Jimmy Nickel did a great job for them. The uh, only disagreement that Epstein had was that Jimmy was interrupting the last press conference by doing side talking over a microphone. And then later Jimmy went out without permission into the public, into a, a pub the night before he was to leave. And they were worried about having a quote unquote beetle running around unsupervised. <laughs> they said, you know, those things weren't enough to cause uh, Epstein to do anything other than to wish him well. They weren't a big deal. Uh, but Jimmy, in Jimmy's mind, you know, it, it affected his independence while he was on tour. And he then felt that Epstein didn't appreciate him. And, and then in his mind, things maybe got a little twisted and he felt that he had been blacklisted and, and wasn't able to get as many gigs as before. In, in truth, if you come back from a two-week experience subbing for a famous band, a worldwide band, there's going to be obviously a lot of newspaper or media coverage about you. But eventually, like all media coverage, it fades away. Yeah. And when yeah. that happens, your concert, the size of your concerts tend to get a little smaller and smaller and smaller until you're playing in small clubs. And so I think that's where he came up with that. And I, I don't. I debunked it in my book. I didn't really feel that that was the case, but that was this moment where he smashed this gold watch and his wife tried to put it back together and she couldn't. And, you know, he ended up just keeping the back of the gold watch wow. over time. You know, we're, we're, I don't know. Uh, we're, we're talking with Jim Birkenstadt, who's the author of the Beatle who vanished, um, which is, uh, which is the story of Jimmy Nickel. And let, let's go to the part that the, the title of your book is The Beetle Who Vanished. You went to look for him. You went to find him. The fact that he right. vanished, tell me about trying to track him down then, because you would again think that a guy who'd been in this position would be findable somehow. You would. Um, I guess after, you know, what I found was at the time prior to writing the book, the only thing you could find in and it was only in Beatle literature. It wasn't, he wasn't in any sort of general music history books. It was really one sentence that Ringo Starr got ill at the start of 1964's world tour. Jimmy Nickel, an unknown London drummer, filled in. And then uh, when it was over, he went back home never to be seen again. And, that, and that's, that was about it. And I thought, okay, well, I got a long way to go. So one of the, the most helpful things was trying to go back to before the Beatles and find out what he did there. That, caught, that allowed me to meet many of the musicians that he had worked with from, say, 1959 through 1964. And so they had a lot of good information. Uh, but then no one seemed to have heard of him about one year after the Beatles. Though in the year after he worked with them, he formed two different solo bands and thought that he could compete with the Beatles. And he had he had very good <laughs> bands, but but you know he was stuck in the back. He wasn't the lead singer. Uh, it's not often that that really works out too well to have your your leader in the back of the band. Maybe Dave Clark Five is the only yep, guy. Yep. Park, you know, that did that. So the bands were okay, put out a couple singles. Again, the 
you know, when the media turned its eye towards other stories, he faded. And by uh, a year later, he felt that he was blacklisted and betrayed. And then uh, he was he got a divorce and then bankruptcy and unemployment. Wow. And and the media just, you know, kind of dropped him. So I, it took me quite a while. I actually ended up talking to Peter and Gordon. Uh, actually, uh, Gordon has has passed on now, but Peter Asher's still alive. And they recalled that when this final story came out in the news about Jimmy Nickel is, you know, divorced and bankrupt and, you know, out of luck, down on his luck, that secretly Paul McCartney read this, reached out to him, actually reached out to Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon and said, hey, why don't you hire Jimmy for a couple of gigs? And so they hired him for some gigs and then they hired him to do some studio work just so he'd, you know, make a little money. And then, uh, where was he now by this, by the time he takes off and sort of disappears, do we know where he was? Yeah. He's in London all this time. And then a lot of his friends tell me that's it. We never, you know, one day he just walked out the door and we don't know where he went. And I think it was Peter Asher who told me that he went he just said, I think, I think he went off to, uh, join a Swedish band. So then, I had to do a bunch of research on Swedish bands at that time. And I found this group, the Spotniks and boom, there in one of the pictures is Jimmy Nickel playing drums. And it says right on the drum head, Jimmy Nickel. And so then I, I contacted the members of that band who were mostly still alive and they were able to help me describe the next two years of his career, traveling the world and recording with the Spotniks. And, and that was a fascinating time because he got to work in the studio. He got to be, he was a full paid member of the band, not just a, a fill in. Uh, they, they were around the world. They had a number one hit in Japan. And when they landed there, it was sort of like a Beatlemania all over again. Then when they get, they, they end up in Mexico for the second time, like in the second year for an extended stay. And one night Jimmy came in to play the show and he just fell off the the drum seat and passed out. And they they were they had a manager who was very strict and they discovered that Jimmy had, you know, taken some drugs and too much alcohol and just passed out. And so he was fired. And so I asked the Spotniks, where, where did Jimmy go? What happens after that? And they're like, we don't know. He walked off into the night. We never saw him again. Did you, ever, had, did you ever talk to him? Did you ever find him and talk to him? Jimmy Nickel? Yeah. I found everybody but Jimmy Nickel. <laughs> I, uh, at the end of the book, the last chapter, I actually, I mean, I traveled to Mexico. I traveled to London. I traveled to uh, the Netherlands, Australia, all these places, really to get a flavor for the various places he went with and without the Beatles. But I also would always check to see if he was there. And finally, right before the book was about to come out, a friend said, you ought to just go to London and find this guy and interview him. And I said, that's a great idea. So I went to London, I visited, you know, Abbey Road and visited Pie Records and all these places he had been to. And then finally, I got up the courage to go to where his current address was. 
And I went to the door and I knocked on the door and a young man came to the door, maybe say 28 years old with a baby in his hands. And I said, hey, is Jimmy Nickel here? And he, he said, I have no idea who Jimmy Nickel is. And I said, oh, okay. So I then spoke with um, a detective in London and said, you know, I'm still here. You know, did he move from this apartment to another? And, and the guy did a little research on the computers and came back and said, uh, it looks like Jimmy Nickel has left the country and it looks like you just missed him by about six months and that he's rented this apartment uh, to, or sublet this apartment to whoever it was you met. Uh, only he did it through a manager and that's why this guy didn't know who Jimmy Nickel was. Hmm. So, so, it's so do, been, we know that, do we know that he's still alive somewhere? I do know he's still alive. Uh, and I'm actually updating the book right now uh, because next year will be the 60th anniversary of yeah. Jimmy playing with the Beatles. And also, um, you know, I'm not sure when the movie's coming out, but they might time it to that as well. Yeah, but. based on based on Jim's book that uh, that we're talking about, The Beatle Who Vanished. And uh, uh, June the 14th, so Wednesday of last week, was the... Uh, the anniversary, the last day that he was a Beatle, that was 59 years ago, and uh, and off he went into the sunset. It is a, it's a, it's an amazing story that there's somebody who had that, who tasted that, because so few people. I mean, it's Beatlemania at its height is is I'm sure was indescribable, and to have been in the middle of that and then to just vanish into thin air. It's a, it's a, it's a great story. Yeah. Jim Birkenstadt is the author. You can find the book, by the way. Uh, it's called The Beatle Who Vanished. If you want to read this. And as Jim says, there is uh, a movie coming out about this based on his book that uh, we'll see at some point. Uh, Jim, listen, really appreciate you taking time to talk about this today. Thanks so much. Fun story. Sure thing, Scott. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I think Matt has found the summer music file here on the Scott Radley show. That's all right. I'm I'm ready for it because you know what starts tomorrow, summer. Today is the last day of spring. Summer arrives tomorrow, so Matt is just warming it up, making sure. Well, the music, not the temperature, uh, that'll warm up too. But yeah, just getting it ready for tomorrow because tomorrow it is all summertime all the time. Let's hope. Let us hope. That tomorrow is the day the temperature rises up into the low to mid 40s. And we can all have summer arrive. Sorry, you don't want low to mid 40s? There is no such thing as too hot as far as I'm concerned. Cold, yes. Too hot, no, no, bring it on. If I burst into flames when I step outside, that's okay. Uh, I'm going um, to tell you a couple stories here. Of uh, I saw this the other day. And I thought I would share this because I think this is great. Some, some little known facts about some things you eat sometimes, but not in the way that maybe you might think, which is very confusing. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, do you ever eat Little Caesars pizza? Probably. You've probably had Little Caesars pizza before. You know the brand. You know about it. You might know that the guy who created Little Caesars pizza was a guy by the name of Mike Illich, who, uh, with his wife, Marion, started the pizza chain. They then went on to own the Detroit Red Wings during the height of the Detroit Red Wings hockey team's dynasty, the most recent one with Steve Eiserman and Brendan Shanahan and all the rest of those guys. Uh, and they owned the Detroit Tigers, 
Well, here's what you might not know about Little Caesars Pizza. The money from Little Caesars, Mike Illich heard one day in Detroit that Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks of, you know, the bus, you know what I'm talking about, civil rights movement. She had moved to Detroit and she had been robbed in her apartment apparently. And he read about this and Mike Illich of Little Caesars ended up paying Rosa Parks rent until the day she died in 2005. So when you bought a Little Caesars pizza, in some way you were helping to pay Rosa Parks rent. That's, you know, I mean, just a very little bit considering they sold a billion pizzas a day, but you know, a little bit. Uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, you know what the phrase, you know what the motto for Kentucky Fried Chicken is, right? Everybody knows what Kentucky Fried Chicken's motto is. It's finger licking good. I'm not even going to talk about the fact that Colonel Sanders spent his waning later years living in Mississauga, which is absolutely true. Colonel Sanders lived his last years in Mississauga, but that's not what I was going to say. Um, the Colonel, or uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken has had one small problem with its motto. It doesn't translate well <laughs> into other languages. There have been some poor translations. Um, the worst of which, when they've, they, most countries, most languages have eventually fiddled around with it to make it work. But um, in Mandarin, when they first translated it, uh, it translated literally as eat your fingers off, <laughs> which I don't know that, I don't know if that's going to be the thing that's going to move chicken in any country, but you know, maybe. Uh, I didn't know this one. I learned about this one just reading this, that salsa Salsa, which we, you know how we eat salsa now. It's generally with chips. You dip chips into salsa. That is not what salsa was originally created for. I mean, salsa was, was, um, it's been linked to the Aztecs and the Incans and the Mayans. It goes way, 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 way back. It was not to be dipped into chips. It was used literally in everything and it included a whole lot more things than we would ever use it right now. But they would describe it apparently, according to historians, the way we eat salsa would be equivalent if they looked at us that, as if we were just grabbing salad dressing and drinking it out of the bottle. That way we, you don't do it the way we do it, except that that's the way we do it. Okay. A couple more here. Just these bizarre things. Um, Arby's. Have you ever thought about why Arby's is called Arby's? Well, those who have, have quite logically figured out that Arby's, what's the thing they serve at Arby's? What's their primary food? Roast beef. Arby. Roast beef. Arby. Yeah, right? Uh, no, that's not it. Although that's very clever and that actually is better than the real reason why it's called RB or Arby's. Now I'm not even pronouncing it right. I'm concentrating too much on the letters. Uh, that would make more sense if it was RB because of roast beef, but no, uh, the reason it's called Arby's is a play on the initials, but it's the, uh, the founders, the raffle brothers, RB raffle brothers, not roast beef. I like the first one way better though. Cause I'll never forget the raffle brothers. That's, uh, that's not going to do it for me. All right. And the last one here, and this one will just, um, make you never want to eat a, um, a jelly bean ever again. Um, you know, when you look at jelly beans, especially the, the expensive kind, the little tiny ones that you get in the boxes that, that, yeah, I mean, the really, that have all the weird flavors now and they're always really shiny and they've got like a glaze around them. 
Um, do you know where the glaze comes from? One of the primary ingredients comes from the secretions of the lac insect. You're, you're, you're eating, <coughs> excuse me, at least in part, I'm making me cough now. At least in part, you're eating bug secretions. So, I mean, it still tastes good. I mean, I, I suppose really who cares what you're eating if it tastes that good. But um, yeah, bug, bug stuff. And that's not the only place where it is. It's in lots and lots of other things. Uh, pigs and other animals, when they are, you know, harvested, they don't waste anything. The, the, the bones and other things are boiled and broken down. They become sort of gelatinous and they get into things like Rice Krispie treats and peeps and other things with marshmallows. Well, yeah, that's where marshmallows can come from. There's lots. Uh, you'd be surprised, apparently what's in your food and what tastes totally, totally delicious. I think it's best just never to think about that ever again. <laughs> Don't think what you're eating, just enjoy what you're eating. All right. We're out of time, but that's okay because, you know, the Beatles thing went long, but I'm glad we did. Uh, all right. Here's your quiz question. One last chance before we take our final break and then come back with the answer. Last chance on the quiz question today, a traditional Scottish Highland Games evening or afternoon features an event in which competitors throw a tapered log that's almost 20 feet long. What is that event called? 905-645-3221, star 9900, or text us at 905-645-3221. We're going to come back with the answer and those who knew. We'll do that right next. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Your quiz question today, slow start, but I think we picked up at the end. A traditional Scottish Highland Games features an event in which competitors throw a tapered log that's almost 20 feet long. What is this event called? The log or the wood or whatever you want to call it is called a caber. So the event is the Caber Toss. Matt, anyone know that one tonight? Yes, we've got Casper, Judy and Brian, Joe and Patricia, Gary, Hugh, Demetrian, uh, Alexandra, Jack, Brian, Eileen, Shirley, Arnie, Maria, Paul, and Jim. And Dave Woodard. Of course, we can't forget Dave Woodard, our colleague and listener and Caber Toss expert. I don't know about that last part, but nonetheless. Uh, folks, thanks for calling today. Really appreciate you playing along. Appreciate you listening We'll be back at 6 o'clock tomorrow on Hump Day, first day of summer. So we'll be probably here in our Speedo, slathered up in sunscreen, or not. We'll talk to you then. See ya. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.